Believe it or not, cast the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan Clark, and I'm Brent Donaldson. Ryan, do you pay any attention to these TV reality contests that test your physical boundaries, like The Amazing Race or American Ninja Warrior and things like that? Oh yeah, I've watched some of those before. Uh, where we are in Cincinnati, our downtown area just hosted a regional competition of American Ninja Warrior. There was like hundreds of people that came out to see that. Yes, uh, yes. So actually, American Ninja Warrior was based on a similar Japanese game show. The American Entertainment Complex has been redeveloping game shows from Japan for decades. Game shows like Big Brother, Wipeout, and The Amazing Race all originated in Japan. Dude, my mind is officially blown. Mm -hmm. There was even a states-based TV show that dealt with Americans surviving Japanese game shows, if you remember that. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that fascination is because we heard a lot of things through media and pop culture that Japanese game shows could be ruthless environments where anything goes. There was one popular show called The Bum Game in which two contestants try to determine if the butt being displayed in front of them is their girlfriend's butt. Wow. There's another butt-related game that I, I probably shouldn't mention here. There was uh, a game called Silent Library, where contestants are moderately tortured, I guess you'd say. Like, um, one guy put a fishing hook in the contestant's nostrils and reeled him in, and the first contestant to make a sound loses. So safety wasn't a priority, and the more outlandish the stunts, the higher the ratings. So the question is, how far did they really take it? Were the crazy shows that some of us have heard of, were they sort of outliers, or did they represent something larger? On today's NotCast, we travel across the country to investigate Japanese game shows to separate fact from fiction. First, we'll visit Scott Tricky, a 48-year-old project manager and business analyst living in Gaithersburg, Maryland. In the summer of 1985, Scott was 14 years old and he'd moved to Japan because of his father's military job. He lived in a suburban area about 50 miles west of Tokyo called Kokobenji, just about 20 miles away from his school. He learned the language by watching television, and it was a given that some sort of game show would always be on. But Scott was shocked at the lengths the shows would go to to push the contestants, whether it was making them eat hot peppers or forcing them to drink beer to see who would have to urinate first. The circumstances seemed extreme. Japanese game shows are just, there. there's so many different ones, and I think one of the key components is that they really... They, they, for lack of a better word, they like to abuse each other. Uh, they really like to try to kind of uh, either, you know, emotionally, you know, try to embarrass them uh, terribly, or even right down to some physical pain. Um, the, the different challenges that you see in some of these game shows, I forget the name of the game show, but there was this one that basically took, um, they would take this group all around, and it's sort of like Survivor, but... You know, they would have these different challenges that they would do and they would they would be eliminated and whatnot. Uh, but 
you know, when it was a large group, for example, there was a, a big rigging system that had these pipes with funnels on the top, and all the contestants would be in the water with their mouths over this uh, tube, and they would throw hot peppers, they would throw, uh, you know, uh, like different types of stinky fish, or uh, just really some of the things that you just would not even try to do on your own. And the challenge was to survive and, and withstand that. Um, on down in the series, when they got down to about three, I thought what was interesting is that how they kind of played the ingenious roles and in how they did this. So they had uh, about three people and they were up somewhere like near the North Pole. I don't know exactly where, Arctic Circle definitely. And they, they brought them out in loincloths. And that's all that they were wearing. And they would make them drink beer. And they make them drink beer over and over and over again. And the loser was the one that had to go to the bathroom first. So it was that sort of like <laughs> mental battle and trying to do this and withstanding having to go, having the, the urinate. And anybody knows that the cold does not help that at all. Uh, it basically kind of forces the issue <laughs> in some regards. And so there, these challenges uh, we're really just about trying to um, laugh at people, um, uh, inflict pain on often, oftentimes. There's one that they were dragged by elephants over logs. And, um, you know, it's just these different types of crazy things. One game show in particular fascinated Scott. Takeshi's Castle. Airing between 1986 and 1990, the show was hosted by famous Japanese actor Takeshi Kitano. Kitano played a count who owned a castle and guards or minions who set up difficult challenges for the contestants to fight through to get to him. The show became a cult hit throughout the world, and Scott noticed that some people, especially Americans who fared well, became pretty famous and can make a good sum of money on the show. In school one day, Scott told his friend Neil that they should try to get on. I think at one point we were maybe at lunch and, and the show got brought up and whatnot and i think at one point i said hey neil we should get on that show somehow and i think he basically took that idea and ran with it so his his girlfriend is japanese and so she basically kind of did the legwork for us so we were we were fortunate on that you know it wasn't like us being cold on this uh although they do have a lot of um foreigners that go on the show and in fact they have uh uh, an entire show sometimes, uh, or an entire episode that is just only uh, non-Japanese, let's put it to you that way. But um, every so often on the regular shows, they'll have maybe three or four um, Americans that will come and uh, be on the show as well. But I was, both Neil and I was fortunate because we had a little conduit that did all the legwork for us. So we basically just had to show up when they said, uh, they wanted to interview us. So Scott Tricky, his friend Neil, and 106 other contestants were all set to compete on an episode of Takeshi's Castle. All Scott and Neil had to do was skip school that day, which they did, traveling to the show dressed in their school uniforms. So this show was basically a live action Mario. You've got the boss Takeshi, and between you and the boss, you must first pass through a series of the boss's minions essentially a series of tests for each of the contestants to work through. And at each point, if you make it, you advance further toward the castle. 
The first test involves pulling colored discs through a trough of flour and then sitting on the corresponding number or color of a giant color wheel that's placed on the ground like a giant roulette wheel. Immediately, anyone sitting on even numbers is told to go home, as are those sitting on red. So, boom. All of a sudden, more than 20 people are gone. The next trial was created to test balance and speed. One of the more popular ones is a water trough area, and it has these stones that some are affixed with posts, so they're very firm and you can stand on them. Some were affixed with chains. So if you stand on them, you sink. And you had to run from one side to the other. And what this ended up producing was people just tripping, falling in the water, some spectacular crashes. Some people just like smoothly bump, up, 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 and they're across. And um, what I noticed is that I thought in the very beginning that all of us, all all the people that, that were remaining in the group, uh, so uh, approximately uh, 90, 97 people or so, or 90 uh, were, were left in the show, that all of us would have to do that. Well, then it came by after they did about uh, 15 or 20 takes of people going by. They're like, okay, we got our shot. We're good, we're moving on. So it then was like, hmm, this show is not quite what I thought it was. I thought we were all going to be having to do this, but it looks like they kind of skipped. So I started kind of developing an ingenious plan of not volunteering right away, because if I volunteered right away, there was a good possibility that I could get out sooner. <laughs> and so I basically kind of held back and just waited and waited. They did some other events. And finally, they came back to us and they said, okay, if there's anybody that has not done an event yet, please come with us. So we went with them. And this event was a huge bowling ball uh, challenge. And it was a, I can't even describe how large of a ball this is. Um, it's certainly tall, taller than any of the, the people there. So it's probably about a ball that is as, it's probably about got a, a six and a half foot, radius and so it's just this huge ball coming down and they put this um we were placed inside these pins so uh the pins have faces uh cutouts for our faces and we could put our faces through it but we're put in these pins and some are facing forwards some are facing backwards all of us are wearing ski boots but some of us the ski boots are being taped. So they're trying to manipulate a little bit. And I don't know the process as far as who got what, who went forward. I'm sure they, they wanted to try to find people, the, the people that were putting everybody in there looking for who could be the funniest one, who could be you know this or that, or give the best showing. And um, they would roll this ball down a huge embankment and hit the pins. And uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, you also had to draw a card and that would give you what placement in the pins you are. If you're ace, you were like right in the front. If you were like 10, you were down far further in the back, which was a little bit safer. But just like standard bowling, you would have nine pins. Um, 
and they would uh, line you up and, and hurl this ball down. And they wanted to try to get as many of you as possible. And if you were facing backwards, you had no idea what was coming. You couldn't adjust. You couldn't do anything. You were at the mercy of somebody else uh, falling on top of you or whatnot. So it was all a matter of chance. There's a thread through this about, and we kind of come to it at the end, about whether or not all of that was on purpose or not because they liked them because they wanted to have an American make it through. Yeah, but I don't know. I just think like... Like, um, like, like what, what do you want to say? Like, well, I, what, when you're it. talking about humans dressed uh-huh. in giant bowling pin uh-huh. costumes and being set up uh-huh. like bowling pins, right? Well, a f- giant bowling ball yeah. comes barreling towards you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a it sounds like a really strange Big Lebowski dream. That's what it sounds like. So it was a giant human bowling lane, but once again, Scott and Neil lucked out. They were set to play in the fifth take of the scene, but after four takes, the show's producers decided they'd gotten the shots they needed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So Scott and Neil were moving on again without really having to do anything. Were producers trying to keep the American around? It's possible. At this point, there were only about 40 people left in the group, and Scott began to get the sense that the game show was a lot less game than he thought. It was more about production. It actually started to snow. And finally, Scott was asked to participate in an event. This is what Neil and I both had to do. Um, And this is um, a surfing type of um, game where we're, we're probably, the starting point is probably about 20 feet in the air. And they have this, uh, I guess there's a big, huge uh, pillar in the middle and an arm that stretches out with a surfboard on it. And the idea is that you jump on the surfboard and you travel around and there's obstacles that's, uh, there's like a fish or there's, um, uh, and you have to either, these fish are quite large and you have to jump over it. Uh, Then there's a a platform that you have to jump on and then jump back onto the surfboard because the surfboard went underneath it. And so the idea is that you, try to make it all the way around, but obviously what they're looking for is somebody to have a spectacular splash 20 feet from, from in the air. And uh, unfortunately, that's what happened to Neil. <laughs> Neil literally, literally um, stepped onto it and sort of like that inertia where you don't know how fast it's going. His, his foot went on, but the rest of his body stayed there and he just made this kind of big old uh, flip right into the water, um, and which was, was quite hilarious. But... I was more determined, I guess. Uh, I really wanted to to make it, and uh, I actually passed that. Neil bit the dust, but Scott actually had to come back and tape on another day to finish the episode. The next thing Scott knew, he was riding a rice bowl down a wet ramp and landing it perfectly. These bowls have different size widths to them. So some are maybe a foot wide, some are only maybe uh, six inches wide. So there's there's varying uh, degrees on, on how thick the base can be. They slide you down, it has, it's water coming down, and it's a very slippery uh, embankment. It probably, uh, it's probably a good two stories high, and it's probably as wide as um, about a 
quarter of a football field um, long. And so they send you down this cup, in this cup, and you slide down and there's water at the very bottom. And the basic uh, goal is to remain upright. Do not flip over um, and get wet. You have to stay dry, basically. When it came to my turn, I was studying how they, what these guys were going to do, and I had to kind of anticipate what what they would do to me and how I should try to be successful in this. And what I thought was funny was that as they started to go, um, they twisted me, and you, you don't really see this in the in the show. Know that this happened, but they actually twisted me. So I quickly adjusted and tried to be smart about it. And I'm like, okay, I got to at some point tip myself back to be able to hit the water so I can be able to right myself uh, perfectly into the water. And um, I actually fell back faster than I expected. So about three quarters of the way, I was sliding down this embankment, not knowing which which way was up, if I was getting close, if I could hit the edge or anything like that. It was, I was literally had my eyes closed. Uh, because I did not know what was going to happen. Fortunately for me, when I hit the water, I remained upright. I kind of tried to balance myself as best as possible, and I remained upright, and they're like, okay, good, you're clear. So, Ryan, just to recap, this game involves a human riding inside a rice bowl with the goal of surviving a two-story obstacle-laden embankment. Correct. So at the end, Scott throws his hands up after the unexpected perfect landing and yells in celebration. And he actually has a screenshot of this image from the television show that he still uses as his Facebook profile pic from time to time. At that point, there were only five people left on the game show, and Scott was oh so close to making it all the way to the castle. It may be important to address here that while the show suffered rumors of injuries and even death during its production, no casualties have ever been reported. However, some serious injuries have occurred, like 19-year-old college student Takahiro Saito, who fell six feet into a water-filled moat and had to be hospitalized. However, Scott says he witnessed no contestant get injured beyond a simple cut or scrape. In the final event, the remaining five contestants are tasked with stopping Takeshi, and if they are able to do it, they win one million yen, the equivalent today of less than $20,000. In this final battle, the five remaining contestants will charge the castle, engaging Takeshi in a game resembling a water gun fight, or in later episodes, a laser tag fight. If you're able to shoot Takeshi, you win. So how did Scott do? So how did he do? So how did Scott do? So how did Scott do? The lead up to the uh, the final battle, there's a, a conversation that Takashi has with one of his, uh, we'll call him minions. Um, and he, he actually directly re- referenced me. And he's like, hey, did you notice that there's a there's a, a gaijin, a foreigner that's in our gun? He goes, yeah. yeah. What should we do? And he's like, well, why don't we just kind of play like cowboys and Indians? We'll get rid of everybody else 
and then we'll leave him to the very end and we'll just circle him and just you know drive him crazy like like cowboys and indians so again that sort of american or their idea of what america was like was you know the cowboys and the indians type of thing so i thought it was funny that i was actually referenced on that they in the beginning of the final battle they put us in these um basically they're golf carts and this game had modified um, quite a bit over the years it used to have this what's called washi paper which is rice paper and they would have a big maybe tennis racket size circle and they gave us water that would give the the competitors water guns and you had to shoot the water gun until the the rice paper broke through if you broke through then you were, that person was out and you couldn't uh, couldn't proceed any, in, anymore. Whether you were a part of Takashi's army or if you were part of our army, you got out if that hole was, was placed. When we did it, they actually upgraded to um, uh, laser guns. So sort of like what you would play uh, laser tag with. It was basically the same type of con- uh, concept in the front in the very front of the uh, 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 golf cart they had a, a post with a target and we needed to shoot at that target to try to blow up uh, and defeat that uh, particular person and then in the end try to get uh, Takashi so they line us up our fearless leader tells us okay you know good luck you have to you know they explain it for the audience uh, you know what we have to do and he's like, okay, here we go, attack! And we start moving forward. And of course I start shooting as well, but I literally only moved about five meters when my thing blew up and I was out and I was shocked. I was like, I had basically, it was only, oh, I don't know, 10, 20 seconds in that I was out. <laughs> and the first thing that ran through my mind is that I came all the way down for this again I I gave up my wrestling varsity <laughs> uh, letter for wrestling for this um, but literally what was funny was that I didn't know what I needed to do I was kind of in shock one that I that I got blown up right away and so if, if we can ever get the tape there it's funny because you see there our leader kind of come out to me and tell me where I need to you see kind of a side side picture of, of them kind of directing me and telling me where to go but basically I was out after that and um, Takashi once again referenced me and uh, he said oh did you see the the gaijin the foreigner his eyes got big as saucers he was shocked he didn't know what to do so it's just kind of fun knowing that I was um, uh, you know directly referenced by Takashi on this Um, but uh, you know the, the entire experience was just uh, the best thing that I, I had ever done and you know the memories of it the the some of the stories that happened afterwards uh, you know years later uh, just are are actually quite quite fun and, and just the the best memory that I've ever had Scott received no prize for his fifth place finish no money no t-shirt only a sandwich for dinner he told us But when the episode aired, Scott had a viewing party for about 30 of his friends, and his popularity skyrocketed. Uh, He was talking about his experience 30 years later to us, and he says it was all worth it. As Takeshi's Castle went on to international fame, Scott's episode would be rerun on various channels all over the world, including Spike TV in the U.S., 
Once, while working the front desk of a hotel lobby, he was able to see his own episode air. That is big time. So as we've heard, there's a lot more favoritism and production that goes into these game shows than I think we first knew. Let's learn a bit more about this world from Josh Murphy, an historian of Japanese game shows who's been studying these shows for the past 10 years. Josh says there's been some misinformation put out there about these shows, but sometimes what we've imagined is pretty accurate. Um, okay. Hi, my name is Joshua Murphy. I am a historian, television historian, primarily focusing on oral history and interviews. Uh, and one of my passions is Japanese game shows, uh, variety shows would, would be a word that some would use, uh, primarily starting with a game show that aired in 1986 to 1989 called, uh, uh, Tsukai Narikibangumi Bangumi Fun Takeshi Joe or thrilling reality game show operation Takeshi's castle. Uh, most Americans know the show uh, for being edited and redubbed on MXC. And I first saw that's which is the way that I first saw it. I saw MXC in 2003 and uh, just saw this crazy, bizarre game show uh, being re edited with Americans completely changing the dialogue and completely changing it. And I was just fascinated. I was hooked on MXC forever. But at a certain point, I wondered to myself, what's the story behind this game show, this this Japanese show that they're taking this footage from? And I went online, and at the time, there was not a lot out there on English websites. I remember I would go online and I would find like a little – you could find like a paragraph about the show. It would, And it was basic, very basic information like Takeshi's Castle was a show that aired – from 1986 to 1989 in Japan, uh, they were they watched by a lot of they were watched by a lot of people. I need to emphasize that because that'll be another factor. But they weren't uh, something that was thought of as highly uh, sophisticated television. A lot of it was seen as kind of crass and goofy, which in its defense it was. Uh, it's kind of like an adult version. Did you ever watch Double Dare on Nickelodeon? Let Double Dare and Legends of the Hidden Temple. It was sort of like those two shows, you know, watching it, it was like uh, like an adult version of those two shows. So at the age of 17, Joshua began searching for people who had been contestants on the game show. He tracked them down, interviewed them, and began to paint a picture of what life was really like on Japanese game shows, including was it safe? And were those rumors about safety true? Did people really get hurt? You know, the number one question I asked was, well, were you hurt when you were on the show? And the answer I always get was no. And I'm like, well, that's kind of odd. Well, do you know if anyone was hurt on the show? Not when I was there, anyone was hurt. And I'm like, huh, that's kind of odd. This this show, like, no one was hurt on this very, very physical, you know, game show where they would just take average people and have them do these very physical-looking stunts. And then I talked to some people who... Uh, tried to make an American version later on, and they they told me like, oh, people got hurt all the time, and I was just like, I wonder what the difference was. I always wondered what was the difference, and it turned out that people were getting hurt on the Japanese version, but they just weren't complaining about it. It was this thing that I noticed is that uh, Americans tend to care more about winning than about having fun. 
But in 2002, injuries that occurred on two different shows went far beyond cuts and scrapes. One person choked to death in a competitive eating show, and two others suffered spinal injuries on a show called Muscle Ranking. And police began investigating the show's producers. Some of these shows were canceled, and critics called for reform. In a Washington Post story from 2002, journalist Mamoru Sakamoto said, quote, Japan is very good at developing creative, interesting game shows, the kind people talk about the next day. But I think this has gone too far, end quote. Joshua says there's another misconception that needs to be cleared up here. Were the contestants on some of these shows actually contestants? Those are not civilians doing those things. Those are celebrities, actors, wannabe performers, B-list comedians. It's not like they just pull people off the street and put them in tanks with alligators. It's and one of the things that Takeshi Kitano had a had a uh, Takeshi Kitano who was the star of, of Takeshi's Castle. Uh, he was sort of the Howard Howard Stern is a good comparison in that he was very popular and he was very crass and his comedy was considered semi-exploitive. So, for example, he had he had this group, this these lead this legion of followers, uh, Takeshi Kitano, and he would put them through horrible, you know, things that we would look at and go, that's just mean and cruel, and would laugh at them while they're doing it. like he would make them wear fireworks and say, okay, you know, I'm going to light these fireworks now. Go run into that water over there. And suffice to say, they didn't jump into the water before and the fireworks went off. Um, and he would, and all the time while this is happening, he wouldn't sit, he would laugh at them. You know, uh, he would put uh, people in a, in a tank with an alligator and slowly tip the tank so that the person would be, you know, closer and closer to falling face first into the alligator and the person, you know, in the tank would be, you know, struggling like, ah, I don't want to, you know, like most rational humans would, these comedians, and he would be laughing at them. And uh, a lot of these shows, as I've said, it's more accurate to say that they're like sketches, I think, than actual games. Um, when you think of something like Jackass, the American show Jackass, which, you know, Johnny Knoxville, MTV. You know, we don't think of that as a game. That's not a game show. That's just kind of people doing stunts. And that's really what it would be accurate to say a lot of these Japanese shows are like. In 2015, This American Life documented the story of Japanese comedian Nasubi, who in the 1990s starred in what was essentially a Japanese reality TV contest. The challenge? Live in an empty apartment with no food or contact with the outside world. The only way to earn food was to fill out a seemingly endless supply of magazine sweepstakes contests and hope to win. What he didn't know was that he was being watched or at least filmed Truman Show style 24 hours a day by a very large TV audience. They said, OK, so here's what here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to be in this room and if you want clothes, if you want food, if you want anything, you're going to have to win everything, anything you want, you're going to have to win it in, in sweepstakes. So we'll give you postcards. you got these magazines. You can enter as many sweepstakes as you want. Uh, can you live off of sweepstakes winnings alone? 
and when you win a million yen, which is about eighty-nine hundred dollars, we'll let you out. We'll we'll let you go. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, here's see these cameras. These cameras are gonna film you. Uh, we're not sure if this is gonna end up on TV or not. Uh, you know, these are gonna film you. Do some goofy like when you you know just play up to the cameras. Do your usual stuff for these cameras. We're not even sure if this is going to air. If it does air, you're going to be the star of this segment. Uh, you know, good luck, best of luck. But what they didn't tell him was that while they were filming him, they were editing the footage and they were airing it as its own show of this guy in a room, you know, entering sweepstakes, trying to survive. And at a certain point when you're in a room alone, you know, you're not allowed to leave the room. You're not allowed to contact anybody outside this room. Eventually you know you put two and two together eventually you're going to go a little stir crazy and so the japanese government uh you know this guy you know stayed in this room and did all this stuff you know not contract notwithstanding and did all this kind of you know spent a you know a year or so of his life in this room for a television show at a certain point people start to realize okay you can't do that anymore and so the the hammer went down that said enough so a lot of these shows that we see that we think of as kind of crazy, a lot of them aren't being made anymore. Nasubi was able to survive, and after a little more than a year, he was able to leave the show, where it was revealed to him he'd been on television the entire time. Now you can imagine that took a while to get over, but he never quite achieved the fame he was looking for. Instead, he was always known as the man in the room. Other Japanese game shows included playing off the country's obsession with baseball. Fans of teams were put in two rooms and told that if their team won, they would get food. If not, they would go hungry. And yet another show featured two men hitchhiking from Hong Kong to London. Of all these, none were as popular as Takeshi's Castle, which went on air in some format in nearly 30 countries. It's even been repackaged for American TV. Of course, producers redubbed the show in English and made up stories about all the contestants. It wasn't the real show, but some argue it's funnier. What's certain is that America will keep trying to reproduce its own versions of popular Japanese shows. So, after mounting pressure and accusations of physical and mental abuse, Japan did reform its game shows. Perhaps too much, some say. As a 2013 story from The Atlantic explains, more and more Japanese people say their TV choices nowadays have become boring. That's right. Even today, it's less punishment-style wackiness and more quiz show who-wants-to-be-a-millionaire-style programming. But it may not matter. With the ease in which viewers can now watch outrageous television from around the world, they don't need their local game shows. They can watch anything, anywhere, no matter how offensive or dangerous. So, Ryan, if you're now fascinated by Japanese culture, you can find dozens of stories about this beautiful country on our website, Ripley's.com. Check out the tale of the Hananuma Masakichi statue, which is so lifelike and realistically detailed that you'll easily believe you're looking at a real person. Believe it or not. Carved by the famous Japanese artist Masakichi, the statue is actually a detailed self-portrait. Find it and other amazing stories at Ripley's.com. So, Ryan, I think it's time to put some modern-day facts to the test. Here is the or not portion of the show, because you can't always believe what you hear. 
In this episode, we've pulled back the curtain on what Japanese game shows were really like in the 1990s, 2000s, and today. But let's take a quick look at current game shows in America, because there's at least one fact that many fans don't realize. For years, many of the big-time winners on your favorite game shows, including this year's prolific Jeopardy! champion James Holtzauer, have been regularly appearing on programs, almost as if it were a job. That's right, Holtzauer had already appeared on other game shows before Jeopardy, along with multiple national quiz tournaments. He is, one could say, a professional game show contestant. And he's not alone. A 2011 article in Market Watch profiled Michael Suverhoff, who made money off of appearances on Jeopardy, Remote Control, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and Wheel of Fortune. He'd been on so many game shows he was disqualified for a year from appearing on another one. As the article said, repeat game show winners already have a leg up on their competition. They know the environment. They know what it's like when the bright lights come on. They've had practice, and they're not nervous. It's a recipe for success. But their fame could work against them, too, because producers aren't likely to pick someone who they recognize from a memorable appearance on another show. Says Lewis Fenton, an executive producer for Juma Productions, which has produced shows like The Singing Bee and Elevator Up. In 2014, Robin and Jerry O'Brien of White Plains, New York, decided they'd try to get on as many game shows as they could. In the next two years, she landed spots on Wheel of Fortune and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and she walked away with more than $50,000 in cash and a trip to Hawaii. After just missing out on an appearance on The Weakest Link, her husband also got on Millionaire, where he earned more than $68,000. According to USA Today, Robin and Terry say just about anybody with a dream and a taste for trivia can get on their favorite game, so long as you show a little effort, smarts, and charm. Just know that if you do try out for a game show, you're probably going to be competing against professionals. It's not bad work if you can get it. And so long as there's always someone doing something outrageous to get on television, whether it's diving headfirst into a pit of mud or skipping school to storm a castle, we at Ripley's will be here to cover it. Believe it or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. The Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. Visit Herzog in person or sign up online at herzogmusic.com. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Be sure to catch the Notcast next week when we examine the lives of conjoined twins, including Chang and Ang Bunker, who both married and had 21 children between them. And believe me, that's just the beginning of their story. That's next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not cast. And uh, the big thing foreigners always wondered is what was the grand prize on Trans- Transatlantic Ultra Quiz? And the answer is the grand prize was always something useless, like an acre of Nevada desert or a log cabin that you're going to have to build yourself.
check out the tale of Hananuma Masakuchi. Not Kuchi. It's Kichi. <laughs> now we gotta have that at the end of it. At the end of it. <laughs>